Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Welcome to Snakes and Otters, this is episode 125. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis again in the captain's chair because we're going to talk about my favorite author. My favorite modern second, author. Yeah, second favorite. My favorite modern author, I'd say, because we've got lots of old authors that, you know, classics and stuff. We talk about authors well, all the time. Hemingway has been our, you know. Uh, has been, yeah, exactly. Uh, if you want to talk about, and he, I guess our, you could say he's modern. Our, our, our viewer, is that the right word? Or, our, Very good, yes. yes. Well, Cornwell is the greatest, your, your favorite living author. That's good. There you Let's go. That's, that's a better way. Yeah. Bernard Cornwell. Absolutely, yes. Uh, we've mentioned him on occasion here. Uh, Martin has read him. Quite a bit. I've read not everything he's written, only because I'm savoring some of it. I have it all. I've, every book that he's written, I think I'm pretty sure I've got. And he is phenomenal. Yeah. He's, he is a historical fiction author, a mm -hmm. uh, historical adventure, you could say. I mean, he's a... He's a yeah, yeah. That's, that's he's a, he's a very guy's author, but and there's women who should love his work, too. He writes so well. We're going to talk a little bit about the man who I've not met. I would love to, though. He's kind of my, my guy. Uh, <clears throat> if I could write just half as good as he does, and he's been enormously successful as an author. He's got dozens upon dozens of books, and he constantly puts one out about once a year. Yeah. He's got so, just to... to, to Give a little bit fuller description. First off, is Sharp series, which right. is a, a series about the Napoleonic Wars mm -hmm. from the perspective of a British rifleman, rifle infantryman, basically mm -hmm. Sharp. Right. Uh, and then, in addition, there are the Saxon stories. That's the ones I've read a little bit of. Yep. That's from the perspective of a Saxon son who becomes a prisoner of the Vikings. Right. So it's Viking Age Britain. Right. Uh, and then what else he's written? Agincourt is a is a he's, yeah, he's, novelization of Henry V and, and Agincourt. Sort of. It, 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 there's a English uh, series that he's written several of, The Archer's Tale, that takes place during that time, the Battle of Cressy, the Battle of Poitiers, and then there's a little bit oh, of a joke. Sydney's Battle? Oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, no. Silly boy, silly king. No, uh, which the uh, Agincourt is kind of like a flash forward because hundred years yeah. later, so it's yes. not the same characters, but it's kind of meant all that. Uh, he's done a lot of English uh, period history right. stuff that he uh, he's uh, he's also done some uh, at least one nonfiction. He's a, he he's a sailor. He does a lot of sailing, so he's done a couple of fiction stories on that. Uh, he did one nonfiction work on the Battle of Waterloo. Which is an amazing, amazing book, and I came to learn and love and that battle, which we talked mm -hmm. about. Yes, uh, a lot of based on his work. Uh, and of course, his his character of Sharp. Eventually, we, it covers his whole life cycle, basically from the time he enters the British Army in 1799. Some of the, these weren't written. Mm -hmm. uh, they were not written in chronological order. He goes back and pops in ones here and there. Uh, but it's the Peninsula War, mostly mm -hmm. uh, the Napoleonic Wars. And it ends in Waterloo, which is, although Cornwell did write another one that takes place five years after that uh, as part of Lord Cochrane's uh, work in the in South America, just to put uh, Sharp and, Harp and Sergeant Patrick Harper meeting Napoleon at St. Helena. He says that. That's, he says he shouldn't have written it. He hated writing it, but he, he kind of had to do that. <laughs> because the whole, kind of one of the running jokes is these guys never see Napoleon. Mm -hmm. Which was really kind of cool. Until Waterloo. At the very end at Waterloo, as Napoleon leaves, that's how the series is meant to end, is, oh, my God, we saw him. You know, that's it. Uh, 
It's an amazing journey. This man has, he's been considered to be one of the greatest battle scene authors. Yes. Ever. Mm -hmm. Ever. He knows how to write, and he meticulously researched. He says he's been to every battle that he's ever written on. The ones in India were the hardest. He wrote the the first three books in the, in the Sharp series take place in India. But he wrote them much, much, much later. They're kind of a trilogy that he put in through there. But uh, I want to talk about the, the man a little bit. Yes, so start with a, a brief bio for us. Well, he's British, actually, believe it or not. He was a war baby, as he would tell you. Yeah. Uh, his... No, I'm, I'm not surprised that he's British. <coughs> oh, you're not? No, didn't surprise me. But he lives in America. He's lived in America for a long, long time. He married his wife, Judy, is American. Uh, and he met her uh, when they were in England. He moved over here, couldn't get a green card to work. So he started writing books. That's how he was able to. If that's if wow, that, isn't that something? Uh, in 1981, he wrote his very uh, maybe it was 80. Were they married when he got here? Uh, yeah, and he still couldn't work. No, they were letting. That's that's wow. the, that's what the story says. He couldn't get a job over here. I would have thought that would have been an automatic. Well, you'd think so, but no, that's he couldn't. He could not get a job. What kind of work was he trying to get? That, that I don't know. Uh, he, this is. I'm just story. curious because that you know might inform some, you know how the man came to be who he is. Yeah, no, it was uh, he was a journalist. Ah, okay. See, that was his thing. He was uh, he was a journalist. He did some work with the BBC when he was living in okay. uh, in England. Uh, he did quite a bit of work over there. They couldn't get anything over. So stereotypical. Uh, Journalist who had that unfinished novel sitting in the bottom drawer of his desk, he had to take it out and finish it because he couldn't work. Yeah, so I mean, pretty I, much I, I, although I, he I, hadn't started it, he hadn't even considered yeah, it. I can't get that now. If you, I mean, I, I don't think an American newspaper or an American television station would have had much use for a British journalist, which is kind of at that time. That's right. There's just not enough out. This is then. 79, 80. Yeah, I mean, I mean, today you the probably post might have. There's times. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, today you might do that for the novelty of it because you 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 know with a we're, million. We're, we're more global now than yeah. we were. This was this was in the early days prior to CNN, right around that time. Yeah, oh, so yeah. you didn't have a lot of that, and it, it kind of speaks to the snobbery of American journalism to me. Oh yeah. So he's been writing forty years. Yeah, absolutely. He's been writing. Sharp's Eagle was the first book he wrote in 1981. Uh, and it's it's actually Literally forty years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's really at that time, uh, and it's the story of basically what it was is he read Hornblower, C.S. Forster's Hornblower, as a child, mm -hmm. which takes place during the, during the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, it's similar to the Aubrey Pat, books by Patrick O'Brien, but they were earlier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, C.S. Forster has inspired so many novels. James T. Kirk, in particular, is yeah. often pulled from him. Yeah. Well, I'm just talking about novelists, not yeah. novels. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, David Weber, uh, his science fiction novels mm -hmm. are largely based on ideas and themes in C.S. Forster's work. Right. I mean, this, this. I mean, that's there's a guy for you that that really put down the adventure novels. He was right. very early in doing that, and that and Cornwell had said, you know, I like that, but. What would you do? And here's here's for the aspiring authors out there. Here's how genius often happens: you take something that's somewhat interesting and you say, "What if?" Mm -hmm. And that's what he did. He says, "What if we told a story about a character that took place during this time, but on land?" And that's where the birth of the character of yeah. Sharp came from. And yeah. he uh, he ends up winning an eagle, which is the French. Uh, Eagle that they carry, it's like their standards. That like Napoleon, a Roman eagle. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly where Napoleon pulled it from. And they had all been touched by Napoleon's hand. They were carried into battle. And there was one recovered at the Battle of Talavera. 
uh, which is in Spain, uh, early on in the war, uh, in the Peninsula Campaign. And basically, Cornwall inserts Sharp into this. And from there, he just kept on right. going. And that's, since then, that has become a kind of popular device of a way to tell stories about these battles. That's right. Not from the top level, but from... A regular the guys, person. The guys that are there. And that ties to the way Keegan would tell, in, in a nonfiction way, right. the stories of these Which battles. was about five years earlier. Yeah. Was when Keegan wrote that. Yeah. So, so uh, it, this would all be, and, and Shara inherits that mantle as well. Mm -hmm. and, and Exactly. And it's a brilliant way of acting. And, and Cornwall is very, very good at laying out the strategy of what's going on from the perspective of the character who is in the tactical yeah, situation. Gonna, That's the brilliance. Right. It's going to be a much more relatable character That's right. than writing the novel as if it were from... Uh, Wellington's perspective. Wellington or, or, or Napoleon's perspective. Yeah, and, and, yes. you know, Wellington is a major character in the books. Right. Of course, his, his life is very well established, of yeah. course. And Sharp, in fact, that's eventually, that's the reason Sharp is a... He is a commoner who really had no future. He's a bastard. Uh, he enters the British Army. He saves Wellington life in India at the Battle of Say, which actually did happen. Somebody did save his life at mm -hmm. that period of moment. Cornwall has done he does meticulous research to make sure when Sharp is interacting with something, it's all that went on. And in the historical note at the end, he'll say, you know, here's where I thought, here's where I inserted things, and here's what really happened, and that sort of thing. This, you know, this unit was really there, and. Uh, where Sharp yeah. interacts with him, this was a real guy, and that sort of and stuff. And he would go on to do that uh, in the Saxon series, series as well, too, which he came yeah. a little bit later. You know, I fudged a year or two here, but, you know, some of these things happen, and Bamberg Castle's a real thing. and That's right. Well, I mean, and, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, they're now calling it the Last Kingdom series. Yes. Uh, because they're of the uh, Netflix series uh, that they did with that, uh, which was the name of the first book. It was called the Saxon series for a long time because yes. it was it takes place in Saxon England, uh, with with Uhtred, uh, as you as you yes. might recall, uh, so wonderfully played by Alexander Draymond on the series, which uh, has adapted a lot of those books. Uh, that series just ended last year. Mm -hmm. uh, Corbo wrote the last book, and he said, "We're done. This is the last story <coughs> of the character." Yeah, uh, which I haven't read that yet. I've read about. I think I've read six or seven novels into the series, yes. and there's like fourteen. Yikes! Uh, uh, I thought there was nine. Well, there, there was about three or four years ago, but he's been writing those yeah. pretty much every year. That's what he's. I, he, I guess he wanted to finish them. Five of them, yeah. Yeah, I think he, and it, it's fantastic work, work about an area of history that so many times we don't think much about because it's kind of like English history begins in 1066. Yeah, it is. Well, it is. I mean, yeah. it, he gets a little more leeway with this than he would Napoleon because it, it is a bit of an unknown. Yeah, right. just a few chronicles that kind of, and and they're exaggerated a touch and all that. So he gets a little more. He has a little bit leeway more freedom and, on that. And and but it is a a realistic novel. Oh yeah, it is not with fully realized characters. Yes, it, it's not. Critical. It's not a uh, what would be the term? Uh, uh, it's not a fantasy novel of the period. No, not it's, like the movie Excalibur, for example. Oh, or or. Uh, you mentioned Diana, what what is it? Gabalada. Gabalada, uh, yeah, like out, out, Outlander, which Outlander. is tied in many ways to the history. 
It's, it's but it's still it doesn't like, contradict. Yeah, I mean, it's still but like once you once you introduce once you introduce time travel, yeah, yes. you've crossed a, you've crossed the Rubicon there. <laughs> yes, where it's a little so, different. But it, it's stressed that Cornwell does not do things. Not like at that. all. His is you know this character is of the time. It's very uh, and all the characters that he interacts with. Uh, he really is. Uh, he says it's a little bit of an extension of himself. I think that many authors often do that. Uh, okay. It's not evident reading that Sharp is his own fully realized character and. Cornwell has been, you know, he's given millions of interviews over the years. Uh, he lives here in America. Uh, he spends the uh, summers in Cape Cod, where he has a home on the on the water. He has a sailboat. Yes, I'm sure he can afford that Cape Cod home very easily. Very much. Those it. are very pricey. That's that's correct. That's right. Which just shows to show he, you know, successful. There is great reward in becoming a successful author. That's correct. And Intent he, for all of those who want to buy books by those of us who are. Snakes and otters writers. <laughs> That's exactly right. We're working on stuff. And he lives during the winter months. He lives in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, very nice. Uh, so oh, he's got a community down there. Yeah. So he's he's constantly doing stuff. He's he's met with lots of different folks uh, uh, that he's done some stuff with. Uh, for example, he is good friends with uh, Daryl Hall of Hall and Oates. Oh, believe it or not. Uh, uh, that would make for an odd pair to me. That, that's that's correct. They uh, Daryl Hall likes his work, and they have done some stuff together. He's the tall blonde one, right? That's correct. That's right. So he's written that. 30 books, several series. He's massively successful, both mm -hmm. as a writer and progenitor of uh, TV series and, and such. Yeah, he actually uh, starred as, as a – had a cameo in one of the uh, uh, Last Kingdom Nice. Once nice. recently, he knew he never was in the Sharp series, although they did like. That's one of the great things about uh, King. Uh, he tends to get cameos in movies that are made out of well, his that's, books. That's, and usually goofy characters, which is great. Well, yeah, that's kind of the way I would. Yeah. Love, yeah. Anyway, you know. um, so he's very successful. So who who besides C.S. Worcester is is a is an influence? Obviously, th there's a great influence there because of the directly telling the other half of the story. Worcester had the sea battles. He did the land battles. Surprisingly, most of his influences are less literary, more historical. He was fascinated by the entire Napoleonic times. Wellington, in particular, is somebody that he's always been very fascinated with, uh, for all the right reasons. Uh, and that's kind of where he picks it up, saying, hey, you know... Wellington's a fascinating individual. Very much so. Did, and Sharp is, is very tied to Wellington. Wellington's in all the books. Uh, there's lots of interactions there on a constant basis. So you're okay. kind of getting that feel for the top while at the same time with the feel for the soldiers. And that's that's why he wrote his book Waterloo, which was his only nonfiction. He says it's the only one he's ever going to do uh, because he loves writing fiction too much. He's done one on Shakespeare. He's done some on sailing, as I've said. He's done some, uh, some uh, medieval stories. And, and a few other, he did a Grail Quest, which was a kind of a fantasy three parter. Yeah, that he yeah, did. Yeah. That I have not read. It's on my shelf in there. Uh, Cornwall's work to me is like a fine wine. I don't want to drink the cellar dry, even though it's like you know I could read them again and again and again. And I uh, and I have some uh, uh, the Sharps books. I have I don't I haven't read all of them. I don't want it to end. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I don't want to get to the um, although Waterloo is really the one I want to read. I've seen all the. All the uh, the BBC series with Sean Bean, who is amazingly, he he really looked very little like Sharp because he's got blonde hair and Sharp is supposed to have dark hair. But uh, Bernard Cornwell, because when that series was being on TV, he hadn't written all of his books on Sharp yet. He eventually gave Sharp a northern accent to match Sean Bean's. Oh, nice! And he kind of retroactively puts this in in one of his books as to why. You sound like you're from the north. 
That's right. Well, well so what? Lots of planets have a north. That's exactly it. He's, he's gone in and he's made that happen uh, in Sharp's Prey, which takes place. Um, he, he, the whole. I'm surprised this is a very condensed series. Then, yeah, because I mean, you're talking 15, 16 years. Well, that's great. Yeah, and uh, so. And yeah, there's, there's not there's not many spaces left to put a story in. I, <laughs> yeah. I was, and that's why I was kind of figuring. Well, I figure Sharp is done, you know, because we covered from 1799 through Waterloo, which is 1815, and then you had one outlier five years later. I'm thinking, well, I guess you know, I guess there's no place left. He went back and added a few in here and there. I said, okay, that made sense. That was a good spot to put it in. I've read many of those. Uh, but he decided this next one he's about to, uh, and I'll give a shameless plug because it's literally coming out here in just a few days. Uh, Sharp's Assassin is his newest book, uh, and it's it drops on my birthday actually, and it takes place immediately after Waterloo. So I figure, okay, there he goes. He found a spot for him. I didn't think he could. Uh, I guess when he finished Utrecht, he decided, let's go back to Sharp. So I don't know how. Yeah, uh, he, he's got a really great website, uh, vernacle1.net, and he's all and he talks. He answers questions all the time. I love it when authors do that. That's right. Have a good relationship with their readers. Very much so. Uh, you know, I'm not real big on the ones, it, you know, the ones I read tend to have good relationships with the readers. Is, you know, it makes them more human. I think they tend to put more yeah. good stuff into their books, well, you too. you got to be considerate of your customers. Right. Well, that's right. right. Uh, Especially you know, when you've created something that's got, you know, such a best-selling history here. It's got legs. Uh, very much so. I mean, both both of his series, and like I said, those aren't the only ones. The man could write whatever he wants, and I'm going to buy it. I'm ashamed Well, yeah, he that. has achieved the level of success that all authors dream of. That's right. And that is that their books become automatic sellers. That's right. And it's amazing. We, we haven't used this word yet, but I've been waiting for us to, for one of you all to say it first, but I will. Craft. That's why yeah. he's a hero for me. The craft he does that is so good. Uh, because you can read any one of these Sharps books, and they are not the same. There's a definite progression and a change right. in the character over time. And the real mastery of this, when he can go back and write about the character earlier and put him in that place that he was at that time before these other things have happened. In other words, in his head, he's able to get inside Sharp before the Battle of Galatia, uh, which is uh, that's before Talavera is when he starts the book, but he, he writes several more. Uh, then he goes back. Uh, short. Here's a little anecdote. He, the the this TV series starts with the books Sharp's Rifles and Sharp's Eagle comes second. Yeah. Sharp's Rifles was basically the production company that was going to do Sharp wanted a starting point, and Sharp's Eagle they thought was too too much. He's too much has already happened by the time that starts. So they, and they also, and here's money for you, they had secured financing for the series with Spanish investors. That, that They put up half the money. So basically they said, well, Bernard, we're going to make these things, but you need to write us a book that we can adapt for the first episode, and it's got to be heavy in Spain. It's got to have, have <laughs> That's heavy fair. Spanish characters, which he did, which yeah. very much he did. And Sharp's Rifles... Cornwall, he doesn't like it much because it's kind of like forced in there. But to be honest, it's one of the most brilliant books he's written. I love that book. It's fantastic. It's kind of like taking this guy who's just become an officer that nobody trusts. He's, he's a quartermaster. But because crap happens and nobody else is left, he has to take command and save the folks as they're on their 
their shameful retreat back. And then there's an encounter with, with a Spanish general who at this time is leading of the partisans and he meets the woman he eventually marries. He, he, he's a romantic too, by the way. Uh, oh, he, interesting. Okay. Uh, very much so. Uh, he has multiple girlfriends, multiple wives, uh, not at the same time, <laughs> mind you. We're uh, talking sharp. We're talking we're Cornwell. Talking sharp. No, oh, okay. Cornwell is successfully married to his wife Judy and has been for uh, what forty plus years. Okay, good. Because so, yeah, for a second there, I wasn't sure which one you were. No, 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 no. Because no. when you say he's romantic, that could apply to the author. You know, putting that kind of stuff into the book. That's, we could have. No, no. Cornwell is a uh, is a wonderful family man, and uh, uh, and he's uh, his wife reads a lot of his stuff and is very influential to him. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to meet the man for sure, and he's also a bourbon drinker, folks. Big ah, time well, that sounds like a spot for a break. I knew we, I knew we'd love that. Yeah, I didn't mean to, to force one. I just wanted didn't. to it make was, sure I got some of those Jeffersons in my glass. That's right. Uh, I've not had yet. Uh, I wish Bernard Columbia. He he is a cigar smoker and he is a weapons aficionado. Which Martin, I know that's right up your alley. Yeah, just a small bit of ice. Oh, absolutely. So let me let me hand that to you. Yes, We're actually you. normally we've already poured by the time we get to the bourbon. Well, break. I had some left over, but yeah. I finished it, so I wanted to so switch over. Actually. Not all, we're just actually teeing it up. Here's the glass. Clink. We're actually making a really That's good. cool just, just enough to bourbon chill. here for Robertius to chew on as we uh, as we talk about uh, my, so what, my what, uh, Yes, what we've just opened is a bottle of Jefferson's. Very small batch blend of straight bourbon whiskeys. Now, this says it was bottled in Arkansas. For a Kentucky company. Now, I don't know that that means it was produced in Arkansas. Well, if it does, this is not bourbon. It's on here, right there. I'll yeah, I know. I'm just looking at the uh, bottle for McLean and Kine, Louisville, Kentucky. All right. And I've had my first snort I had with water. So yeah. Now I've poured a little bit, just a touch more. Okay, so you're, so you're it's a little slightly deleted. Del, del, not deleted. Diluted. What's oh, okay. what amazing what difference a... Uh, Wow, can make. So I'm gonna give it another old try here well, with the right guys. Ahead, sir. You know, to see what you think there. You're catching this live, folks. Martin is drinking the bourbon, and this does not change my opinion. Does not change. Going, going from ice to neat does not change my opinion. And your opinion is? Ugh. Really? Oh my goodness! Tell us I'm how you really not feel. good. Not, not good. good. Not good. Maybe it was bottle or brewed in still rather in uh, Arkansas. I can't place the flavor, but I it's not it's not good. Oh no, sir! It's very sharp. Yeah. No pun intended. No, but well, yeah, I was gonna say if you're gonna pun that yeah, one, this is the time to do it. It's got a very immediate sharpness to it. Yes, it's very sharp, and like, okay, was this actually put in wood or not? Well, if it's it's a blend, so it's gonna be different kinds of bourbons, but it has to be put in a barrel at some point. This tastes like they drop some food coloring in it to give it that color, and there's no wood here. There's no mellowness, and I yeah, just I can't place this flavor that I'm getting from it. But I get it from the the nose, uh, the scent, you know, yeah, and from the flavor. I get a little bit of caramel out of this. Maybe a caramel that's been left over since Halloween. <laughs> it's, it's Easter. Really? It's Easter. I, it's a caramel that, that's been sitting under caramel the couch. Caramel doesn't go bad. <laughs> well, it's been sitting under the couch since Halloween, and the dog just found it. Really? I, 
I'm, I'm stunned. Because I know this never, is a high ender too. It is. It's very popular. That's why I bought yeah, it. Yeah, it's. I would not put this at my top. I I agree. I don't know. Get it the as negative of one as you, but um, you're right though. It's it's all immediate. There is no decent. Um, I don't want to say aftertaste, but you know, bourbon when you drink it, you have a multiple. <coughs> Or at least a good bourbon, you have a multiple series of. There should be a set of uh, complexities to it. There's um, yeah, a multiple series of interactions. Yeah. So yeah. you know, you've got the initial taste. Uh, you got uh, you know where that that burn or that sharpness uh, mm -hmm. is, or you know to whatever degree that is. There's always something. There's always that lingering after effect. Not always, but generally. Um, and this, it's almost disconnected. You got that immediate bit on the mouth, and then it's down here in the stomach, and there's nothing in between, it seems. Yeah. I mean, there yeah. is, like right here in the back of the throat, but it's, it's, it's not on the tongue, and it's unpleasant on the tongue. And then it's really? down here, and it's warm, but it's it's not it's not glowing. Yeah, it's almost like the a... good one uh, should almost feel it. The warmth should almost glow from you. It's almost like a, uh, a bit of... Um, Acid ingestion. Uh, yeah, little, yeah, it's oh, yeah. very much reflux. a reflux kind of deal yeah. to it. Yeah, because it's right here, right here, and right here, and yeah. that's yeah, right at that diaphragm. Yeah, right at your diaphragm is just kind of that last resting spot, and it's just like, Ugh. yeah, my goodness. I, I mean, I wouldn't call this horrible. No such thing as a bad bourbon, right? But this is my. This is not as. This is not the high-end quality that I expected. I, it doesn't I, compare to Basil Hayden. Oh, God, like. no. Yeah. No. No. Basil Hayden is, you know, top shelf. Right. Obviously, price-wise, it is not considered top shelf. But taste-wise, I consider it as top shelf. This is lower shelf. This is a couple of shelves and below. And it, it was not the $10 bottle. No. Right. It was, it was uh, $20, $25. I will say it's, it's right now. Well, $25, that's... I would call that lower, mid, very much lower well, range. So hey, you get for thirty, so you know. It's right, just, but I think that's a bargain at a twenty-five dollar yes. price point. Do four roses every day of the week. Oh, absolutely, Sunday, absolutely, and ignore this completely. Yeah, that's so. This is the one I can give to when the company comes yes, over that yes. I want to have them drink. Yes, and save your uh, save, save your Woodford and give them that. Yeah, yeah, tell them this is you know very small bag. I mean, again, I don't want to denigrate Jefferson's because. You know, I, I don't like to denigrate bourbons, but you know they do have a unique uh, take on bourbon. You know, this is the blend, which a lot of other companies do just fine. Yeah, they also do that ocean aging thing. Yeah, uh, so they they try to approach it differently. So you know, maybe all of this stuff was made originally in in Kentucky, which if it, I mean, it had to be. Otherwise, I wouldn't call it bourbon. I mean, I know legally you can, but. Anybody from Kentucky knows bourbon is made in Kentucky. Right. Um, so maybe it was barreled up in uh, Arkansas. Maybe if it was made in Arkansas. Ship it down there. I mean. Age it. And then bring it back. Yeah. If it was if it was distilled in Arkansas, Clinton must have had something to do with it. Oops. Oh, he went there. I must wow. have. We actually we actually said a political thing, so we never do that. That's not. That's social commentary. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, fine. Fine. Yeah. Fine. Um, I, don't, I just I cannot place that flavor, but it, it it's unpleasant, and I I would avoid this. It's not medicinal. 
No. It, it's because I know you have problems. It's something it that else way. besides medicine. There's something else to it, and I can't place it. Well, it's weird because the initial taste almost is, is nothing until the effect starts. Yeah, and it's just, ugh. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just not playing well with chocolate or something, and I've, I've had a little Debbie here. I haven't, and no, I agree, though. It's... It is not as good as I thought it was going to be. That's kind of disappointing. Speaking of little Debbie, Francis has provided some ding dongs. Let me have one of Francis' yes, ding dongs. White chocolate ding dongs, absolutely. Yes, totally went over his head, right? In one ear, out the other. White fudge. I just asked for one of Francis's ding dongs. Oh God! And he put no. him in a barrel and brought him in here, or brought him in a wheelbarrow. And those are Little Debbie Fall Party Cakes, so they're not pumpkin flavored, but they have oh, a pumpkin on the box. That's right. Yeah, that, yeah we, don't, no, we, don't, we don't want to eat that pumpkin spice. No, no. Pumpkin spice is good stuff. Because all it is is cinnamon and nutmeg. Right. I mean, that's good stuff. Okay. Okay. Fine. Yeah. So, I mean, a, a Little Debbie that was pumpkin spice would be... It's, Do they have they're it? still great. Oh, I love them. Yeah, I'm yeah, I think we've done those. Yeah, they're great. So I'm just kind of over pumpkin spice. So what were like, you having though? Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm still I'm still finishing a little bit of the uh, basil Hayden. I wasn't ready to take the plunge. I was letting YouTube be the guinea pigs. Uh, well, when when you finish that one, you'll have to see if it's unanimous on this joke. I will. I will. Uh, the next episode, I'll make sure I. Uh, I, I want to it. It's disappointing. It's ugh, something to it. I just don't care for. It's just it doesn't have that good woodsy flavor to it. Yeah, woodsy. There's, there's not a lot of char in that. No, and it, so it's not pulled any of that, you know, kind of hickory apple oak sweetness into it, and it's just kind of jarring and funky. funky. Funky, not in a good funk way. Because no, there's good it, funk it's and not, then there's bad it's funk. It's not George Clinton and funkadelic and Parliament kind of funk. It's funky as in something you found under the refrigerator funk. I don't know, go quite that far, but I agree, it's not. Not, not top shelf. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't always know the words, but I got, I can, you I can, can get the sense across. I can paint you a picture. It is not Parliament Funkadelic Funky. It is under the refrigerator funky. It's, yeah, the picture is painted very well. That's yeah, right. yeah. You know, and it, a lot of times, you know, we think of the lower end bourbons. They're the ones that have more bite. Um, yeah, like a Devil's Cut. Oh, I think that's a pretty good change of pace. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a very that good Jim Beam Black we had. Uh, yeah, in my place. They tasted very different. Yeah, uh, that was you know to me that was a, a pretty good uh, for that, especially for Jim Beam. Yeah. I mean, this tastes like they were trying for something, right? But they just they whatever it is they're trying for, it's just not. It, I, I guess it just misses the mark for a, a person who likes kind of a. And again, we talk about always breaking out of the confines of things, but it, it, if like a. A good woodsy flavor bourbon with the potential for that's a little bit of sweet and a little bit of caramel and a little well, bit yeah, of char. I mean, it just misses that mark completely. Well, you know, you, you've got a wide boulevard to play on, to ride on yeah. for bourbon. And uh, getting off the road into the ditch doesn't serve you well. Yeah. Well, it's kind of hard to get off the road and into the ditch. I know it's a wide road, but yeah, you're it's, saying it's, it's I'm, a 16 boulevard it. through downtown Moscow. Oh, really? Wonderful. Okay. Very well, good. Here, my advice is, yes, let the relatives have this, and if Bernard Cornwell rings your doorbell, don't offer him this. No, well, I'll offer him basil hay. Yeah, absolutely. Wood, wood and I'm, sure, I'm sure he does. And uh, 
Uh, he's a hoot. He really is a hoot. Yeah, uh, that's really neat. I, I really love that detail. And and you're right. If you hadn't done it, then I knew Robert and I were going to hand you to. Well, okay, that's great, but why is he a hero? And this mastery of a modern writing craft mm-hmm. that you appreciate so well. No, it's not Hemingway, but it's not intended to be. No, it's 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 it is a mass entertainment, mm-hmm. but it's one of the best. It's done. So well, well so as a well. mass entertainment and the characterizations. I know you love the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean that that's by no means a guarantee. That's kind of what makes it good. You pick up, uh, and that's kind of the secret sauce to success in a novel series. If you get a character that people like, they'll buy that character. Oh yes, uh, uh, yeah, I mentioned David Weber. Uh, yeah, you know his Honor Harrington uh, novels right. are based on Horatio Hornblower yeah. you know, from C.S. Forrester. That's why it's H.H., yeah. Honor Harrington. Right. And he was going to kill her off in the 11th novel. Yeah. But he couldn't because he liked her too much. Well, yeah. You know, he that. wrote the character so well that he couldn't bring himself because he thought, i got more stories. That's, yeah. There's more Wild to do with somebody that's a good character. Yeah. Yeah, you got to find ways to, to – they'll take you where you want – where they want you to go sometimes. And I, I guess he was obviously a master at picking that up and thinking, no, there's more here. Yeah. Yeah. That. And, uh, well, and I think if you've got a good character like that, I think it should take you places that you don't know where you're going to go initially. Because mm-hmm. um, I think if you plan everything out in the most minute detail for your characters, it's much more difficult for them to come alive. That's correct. That's yeah, very mm-hmm. much so. If there's if you're never surprised, then I don't think your reader will be either. Mm-hmm. That's right. Just because and a historical character like Sharp. And Sergeant Harper, who is in all the books with him, well, not I should say not all of them because he's not in the the prequels in India, but there are others. And uh, Obadiah Hakeswell, who is according to Cornwell the greatest villain he ever created, and I'm telling you, oh my gosh, this guy's really <laughs> Pete Postlewaite played him uh, in the series. And you guys know Pete Postlewaite; he's an amazing actor, far, gone far too young. Uh, it was it was just wicked how how you could take somebody and make them so evil. Uh, and yet, still realistic. That's yeah. that's how you do this. Yeah, this was some some great stuff, and uh, seamlessly married with the historical events that they go with. Uh, just I, I, I've been known to pick up one of his sharp novels, and I go read the historical note first, so that way I kind of know well this was re- what really happened, and this is where all this intersected. And he you always know, likes the spoilers. Absolutely, I'm a spoiler king. You guys know that. You all hate that. I know, but. I'm a spoiler guy. I like to know. Certain things I don't care anymore, but, you know, when it's because important, I, can, I don't I can like appreciate that. Because I can then appreciate the craft that went into telling the story. Properly. I tell you, that's you why. know, obviously, as you said, Martin, craft is, is the big yeah. deal for us um, because it's a job well done. Yeah. And, you know, I read a lot of stuff off of uh, Kindle Unlimited, uh, off of Scribd, which is more polished, but uh, Kindle Unlimited is where you generally find most of the self-published authors. Mm-hmm. And I found some gems, some absolute gems. Mm-hmm. Found some real stinkers. Yeah. Uh, you know, nothing annoys me more than grammar mistakes in something that's been published. Well, I'm sure I can probably find a few things, but you know. Well, yeah, that's... Talking about books. Yeah, that's, that's there's, there lies part of the problem. Um, you know, gra- well, in this day and age, misspellings and grammar mistakes should be impossible. Because yeah. the computer should take care of that for you. Because yeah, pay attention enough to, to get those right. 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 Well, you know, there there are tools now that will uh, analyze words that are uh, you know sound the same or similar versions of a word and ask, 
did you really mean to use this word here? Maybe you meant this one. And sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. Yeah. But they'll find those for you. Yeah. So at least you're deliberate enough to make sure, you know. Right. And, you know, do you get your apostrophes proper? You know, possessive versus contraction. All sorts of, you know, all that. Yeah. It's a know, big one for me. Yeah. Yeah. So there's varying levels of, of craft. But it's always interesting when I go from one of these self-published novels, even one of the ones I think is a really good self-published author. Yeah. And I go to somebody who's a professionally published author. Yeah. Uh, so just recently, I uh, had been reading uh, Z.A. Recht, uh, R-E-C-H-D. He's a zombie author. Uh, and he's like, I like my zombie fiction. <laughs> and, uh, you know, fairly good. Although that third book I thought was kind of disjointed, but in, in this particular three-book three series that he had. Uh, but then I read a Clifford Simon novel. Or cynic. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a science fiction author, uh, rather famous in sci-fi circles, and it's called The Way Station. There's not a whole lot of overt action, so it's not a thriller. No, but it's very engaging. Yeah, and the level of craft, the difference between him and the self-published authors is so evident. In many ways, it makes me enjoy the professionally published authors even more. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, I, I don't read the, the self-published stuff, the, the zombie apocalypse or other uh, dystopian uh, literature. It's almost hard to get for... those published anymore anyway. There's just such a glut with the zombie yeah. fiction. So, you know, I don't read those for uh, any other than pure mindless entertainment. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's like uh, watching sitcoms. I don't even really watch those much anymore, but I used to. You know, it's just mindless entertainment. It's like and... sitting and eating potato chips till the bag is empty. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, you know, but sometimes, like I said, I find really good gems, yeah. but rarely do I find one that, that comes to the level of something like Clifford Slimak, uh, Stephen King, yeah. uh, Bernard Cornwell, that's right. Uh, David Weber uh, is one of my favorite sci-fi authors. So that, you, you know that I've mentioned him many times, uh, or even some of the nonfiction authors mm -hmm. that we read, you know, David McCullough. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Keegan. There, yeah. There's value in having a real editor, a professional editor. As a teammate, almost. Yes. That's, that's, good that's the way it's meant to be. Yeah. It's the way it's meant to be. You know, well, there's different kinds of uh, editors. I didn't realize this uh, uh, until I started getting really into studying writing. You know, there really are different levels of editors. Oh, yeah. You know, there's, there's the guy who buys your stuff. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean he's really editing your stuff. Right. You know, there's your online editor. That's the guy who actually does look for the spelling mistakes and so on. Right. But more importantly, you need a developmental editor. Bing, bing, bing. Yeah. That's yeah, the guy that's who helps right. you come up with the story. That's right. It helps and, you polish it. And reminds you that, oh, no, don't do it this way. Do it this way. Yeah. Uh, and, and or that this plot point doesn't work well. Yep. And then you reach a, well, it's essential to what comes later. Okay, well, let's let's work on yeah, that. Let's, let's figure out a better way to do it. To yeah. a, better way, a little better way to say it and still accomplish the same goal and... You know, yeah, that's, that's a developmental editors are you know they're they're gold. Every yeah. every published author will tell you that's uh, that's getting a good editor is is. Unfortunately, a lot of the even the published authors though they don't get the developmental editors because you know they only get like a thousand dollar upfront uh, advance. So you know they're not expecting a whole lot out of those books. So they don't put a whole lot of time into those books. Right. You almost have to prove yourself first. Yeah. So you, you kind of go through this this period. Uh, there are exceptions. You know, Stephen King got a four hundred thousand dollar advance for his first carry. Yeah, carry. Now that was in the early seventies. That's a massive amount of money That's for the first time. Cash. Yeah, 
Well, in many respects, I mean, that's, that'd be a massive advance today for a first-time author. Never right. mind back then. Billions of dollars, yeah. But yeah. you know, he the the editors probably worked with him more then. But now he's the big name that he is. You know, he publishes twelve hundred page novels, and it's probably you know thirteen hundred pages when he submits it. You know, <laughs> they don't cut out a whole lot. Yeah. It's one, one thing I've always said because about he'll big name authors. He'll sell the guy from his name. Yeah, nobody edits them like they should. Yeah, Cornwell keeps his lean though. He does. Yes, he does not much so. his up. No, it's uh, uh, you're, everything's you're, lean. They're all about the same length, and that's just see. There's another testament to the man's craft. His discipline is so. I mean, yeah. it, it, his talent yeah. and his discipline—they go together. Yeah. Uh, he recognizes how that works, and he tells he finds that moment in history. Where he wants, where Sharp, in the, just to use Sharp as an example, where he wants him to be, and then he takes the character as he knows him and figures, well, what would he be doing here? His first novel, his first idea of his that he wanted to come up with was the Siege of Badajoz uh, in the Peninsular Campaign. It's a huge uh, fortress on the Portuguese-Spanish border mm -hmm. uh, that Wellington uh, that Wellington uh, besieged uh, in uh, I think it's eighteen oh nine. Don't quote me on the number. Uh, and, but he, he needed some setup. So it was actually, that was the third book he wrote. He wrote two others before that. He wanted to warm up the character. Right. And that's kind of, but once you kind of got that, the characters are now real. Then all of a sudden he can go, well, where are we going to go with this? So he finds, well, this happened next. Okay. Well, let's build something there. And, and, and so on until he fills in. Then he realized, well, you know, I never did do this story. Uh, most time, other than Sharp's Rifles, where they told him, we want you to do this here. He pretty much does what he wants to. Uh, he went back to do the, th the three-part trilogy uh, at the very beginning of Sharp's career. He did that much, much later. Mm -hmm. Those are probably my favorite books. Those, they're, they're just, they're amazing. Uh, and, and they're best read as a trilogy, although but they don't have to be. Uh, and it's, he introduces the character of Obadiah Hakeswill, who is in the future, he's already dead. You know, he's killed him off by this time. He says, well, damn, he was too damn good. Well, I can do a prequel. There we go. So that's what we did. And, uh, yeah. It works from there. Uh, I, I can't say that's great things about the guy. He's uh, one of my favorites. Yeah. You know, I think the hallmark of a good author is somebody who can not just do the craft well, but you were talking about earlier uh, about the, the great villain. Mm -hmm. It is very difficult to do a good villain and a good hero. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you don't always get them both in the same story. Uh, but it's that because, you know, they have such different motivations. And that's the mark of a good author is to be able to write such diametrically opposed kinds of people. Although often they're not always diametrically opposed. They're two sides of the same coin, which is also can be very difficult to write. Very good. So, mm -hmm. you know, being able to differentiate them, make them real. Uh, you know, if I don't believe the characters are real or if I start questioning, you know, why is that being said? You know, mm -hmm. like there's one set of books that I'm reading and, you know, it's getting very monotonous because it, it, there's so much complaining. It's the middle of a freaking zombie apocalypse, and there's all this sarcastic complaining. You lost me. Where's then very quickly done that? Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, especially when it's book after book. So you know, and which this is one of the reasons why I read these is and and like to go back and forth is because I think it helps me as I write because mm -hmm. I see things like yeah, I better not do that. I better not do stuff like this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, time will tell whether or not I manage to achieve that. But, you know, study the great ones uh, oh, as well as the bad ones. Well, that's right. Because you yeah. can see the difference, mm -hmm. and that's important. Uh, and I think that's why we look at some of the people we do at, on the Our Heroes. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, we look at 
people you should know, not just heroes. And, Absolutely. Which know. we've we've struggled with the title of the of that thing. <laughs> yeah, too, yeah. So. I mean, originally it was certainly people who were very very influential in our personal outlooks, but also now we're mixing in a little few more of. Well, you these should are know just, these people. Yeah, these are super super people that we feel are awesome at what they do, and they influence us in that way. <laughs> They're aspirational, yeah. especially for Francis here. Who's a budding novelist, Otterites. You've you've heard us discuss this before. Yeah. Uh, Robert and I are hit deep in Francis's manuscript. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we're. I think I'm ankle deep. You're hip deep. I'm not as far in as you are. Yeah. No. Um, it's a page turner. I'll just say it that. Well, I'm grateful. And I'm, I'm hoping Otterites, you do get to see it someday. Uh, hardcover. And then a beach paperback, yeah, summer well, vacation paperback. Yeah, well, you know, with the the tagline on the paperback saying, you know, blockbuster movie coming soon from probably Disney because they own everything. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Wait, Tarantino yeah. directing or I don't know, if no, I don't know about that. I, about that. <laughs> I love Quentin Tarantino, but I don't think that. This uh, you never know. This, I, this, it feels like Tarantino material to me. Really? Okay. Yes. Well, I don't know. Uh, well, you know, you got to figure it. Lenny, he's branching out from the crime stuff. Okay. And he did the World War II stuff. Right. With Christoph Walls and, and, and yeah, and, uh, and Glorious Bastards. Bastards. Yeah. So you know. Uh, well, yeah, I mean that was still a little off key though. Uh, you know, compared to uh, a normal like Monument Men, which was a little off key in and of itself, yeah. but it was a little bit more normal. Uh, yeah, because I don't, this is pretty straightforward what I wrote, and uh, that's, uh, I don't know that, uh, I would love to see what you did the Jack Reacher movies? Uh, Tom Cruise? Maybe? Yeah, no, I mean the director. Oh, I don't know who directed Oh, on it. If, if you hadn't asked me, I could tell you, but... Uh, but, you know, that's the kind of director you would want. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Somebody who can direct a Mission Impossible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's that's kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So... Oh, right. you, know, you wouldn't turn down James Cameron either. Uh, no. No. So we're, we're maxing and relaxing in, uh, here in uh, Studio F. Again, moved down from down the hall from Reed's lab uh, into Johnny's game room. Johnny's yeah. game room uh, with the, the portal of the negative zone right next door. And, uh, and Eilis is probably still on the toilet. <laughs> yeah. And so we're, we're maxing and relaxing is. is Lubing out a lot of discussion here, but I, I tell you, the guys have really—they've put the onus on me. I, I, you know, we are back at uh, at uh, my place in Studio R next month, and I don't know what I'm going to do because you know they have upped the game in the studio. Yes, yeah, so we've upped the game from hunkering around a table or a desk to maxing and relaxing on the couch. Yeah, like uh, you know, snacking on top of the food chain kind of thing here. Number eleven. Hey, yeah, that's really good. Stars, you know, we're the thing. That's for darn sure. So, let us have what's next time. Uh, pop Francis. culture next time, and you know, it's, it's October. <laughs> last last year we talked Frankenstein. We've got to do Dracula and the Vampire movies. We got to talk about it because they're so awesome and so good. Yeah, and and it's it's a, another thing that's right in Francis' wheelhouse. Oh, I know you bet you. Hammer yeah. films and oh, like, all that yes. sort of stuff. It's going to be a great, wonderful time. Let us come and bite your neck. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. 
We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week, same snake time, same otter channel.